please turn to the second chapter of James, James chapter 2. When we um, think about what a church should be, what it should be like, we need to begin with who Jesus is and what Jesus is like and was like when he was on the earth. James is, remember, writing to a congregation or a group of them with which he was familiar, which gives him the insight needed to be very specific sometimes in his Awareness of the specific issues in these congregations led him to focus often in this letter on how their outward behavior was not, as professing Christians, was not or did not reflect the faith they professed to have. These congregations were not acting like they were the representatives of Jesus in the world, of divine reconciliation between God and humans that is meant to overflow into reconciliation between Humans and humans are between people. Tonight, in the first part of chapter 2, James begins to address these things head on. First of all, in regards to the issue of partiality in the church. Partiality in this context being favoritism, namely towards the rich, and how that so deeply compromised the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, James doesn't deal so much with the heart here as he does with their outward actions which of course has implications for what's on the inside. He doesn't really go there yet. Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ is a community of grace and reconciliation that we see here, at least in this culture, sometimes uh, acts as a sort of court, if you will, to settle disputes. So uh, as we read in, if you remember the the issue in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, the church would address such things in different spheres of life uh, so that, Christians would not go outside of the church to resolve them and destroy their witness as the people of God. Now that Jesus Christ has set us free from the sentence of death in the law that we could not obey, we are to pursue the fulfillment of the law that Christ has already achieved for us by loving one another. They were failing miserably in this regard, in these churches. James reminds them that we're a people who speak and act as though we are not judged by the law. We don't have condemnation hanging over us, but have been set free to fulfill the law in Christ. So even in our darkest moments, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what the gospel proclaims at all times. And reconciliation is a key means of displaying that to the world. Our Lord Jesus calls us to fulfill the law of love by acting with the same humility and impartiality with which he lived his life on earth that in all things we would proclaim that mercy triumphs over judgment in Him. Let me pray and we'll look at this passage. Father, I thank You for the truth, the power and authority of Your Word. God, I thank You that it is perfect and inerrant and infallible and that for this reason we can count on it and know it speaks to us eternal divine truth. Lord, I pray that tonight we would do what the text told us in chapter 1, to receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save our souls, the Word of Christ in the Gospel. I pray that we would all hear and believe this Word tonight as it pertains to this topic. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me begin in verse 1 of James chapter 2. He says, My brothers, or brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James begins this first section by, if you'll notice, confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Jesus is God the Son. And as such, James is saying, we're accountable to Him. We profess a faith in Him. Are we living like that's who we are? And he says that we have faith in the Lord our Savior who did not show partiality. Jesus did not play favorites, particularly not based on a person's wealth or their poverty. That's the basis of the word for that begins chapter 2. Right? In verses 2 to 4, James reveals that in these congregations... They're actually favoring rich people over poor people. Now, these are the kinds of things that we normally don't think actually happen. Like, or maybe, you know, people actually get snubbed in the church because uh, they don't have as much money as others. Yes. But like this, this type of favoritism actually happens. Uh, and it's always been happening. It, it was happening there. It still happens today in different ways and in different places. But this isn't just happening in their gatherings. That's what James is driving at here. They're what we would know of as, as services. It's happening in their dispute resolution, in that part of the church where these things will be dealt with. There's a, a very good case to be made from this text in James 2, along with what, what I referenced earlier, what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, that disputes of all kinds were initially being settled in the gathered congregation of the church. This is part of what they uh, would do. That There wasn't the same divide in this culture as there is in ours between like, well, that's a legal matter. That's a personal matter. That's a, the church didn't um, separate those things out in the beginning. Um, sometimes, apparently, the church acted as a sort of court to settle some disputes so that they would be settled, again, in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that we're Christians. We don't, we don't go out there and fight each other like the world does and argue like the world does and play favorites like the world does. It was set up to keep that from happening. That's how closely knit the church of Jesus Christ was in the very beginning. Part of that, of course, is the fruit or the result of persecution. Um, that tended to drive the church closer together uh, in different things. And so sometimes uh, it would act as a court, unless, of course, there was an imperial edict or uh, local edict that would have prevented that or not allowed it or something. But um, this is why Paul told the Corinthians, again, they need to be settling the issues that were causing them to want to sue one another he says, don't, why would you do that in front of the world? If, if, if you have disputes, settle them in-house. Right? Don't let this get out. Don't let it get into the public course. There's, there's no need for that. In other words, the New Testament writers assume that the gospel is going to affect our lives so deeply that we would give up these rights and act as Christians. Right? That's, that's what's uh, in the text. Christians don't act like the world. Not just in what, where we don't go and what we don't wear and what we don't say, but in really fundamentally in how we treat each other. So the witness of the church is crucial then to the mission of Jesus to save sinners. In these congregations, when disputes were being settled, they were showing favoritism to the wealthy, not unlike in legal matters today all over the world. The richer you are, the more likely it is that you will um, do well in court. Of course, not across the board, but it is a thing. Uh, the poor people were being... We're even being told they needed to sit on the floor in these meetings or over in the corner somewhere. Now, you can imagine the optics of that and how it affected judgments. And that was the point. 
this group is clearly higher, has more standing, is more important than that group, so we're going to listen to them more, listen to them better. They look by their very posture that they're guilty and beneath us. And James says what they're doing is making distinctions among themselves, and in so doing have become judges with evil thoughts in verse 4. He doesn't even give them enough to say, well, well, you might be having evil thoughts when you do that. He says, no, no, no. You make yourselves judges with evil thoughts when you're driven by making distinctions like that. That's evil, he says. When we make judgments based on appearances, based on favoritism and preference, that means categorically all our judgments are tainted by the evil that still resides in our hearts because that's not from Christ. It's not of him. Favoritism and partiality are not Christ-like. They're very un Christ like Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus didn't treat people like that. And it's Jesus, right? And James is teaching based, by the way, very heavily on Jesus's teaching from Matthew five and the Beatitudes, by the way, that to hold faith in Jesus in verse one means we do not show partiality and favoritism, right? Don't do that. And simultaneously claim that you have faith in the Lord. Jesus is what James is saying, especially when that partiality and favoritism are based on financial status. And again, there are still uh, partiality and favoritism over money and all kinds of other things still residing in the church today. Uh, Big givers tend to get bigger standing in the church. They know that because they'll wield it often as a weapon, right? I give a lot to this church. My voice needs to be heard. This church wouldn't survive if it wasn't for me and what I give. If you don't do what I want, I'll leave this church and I'm taking my money with me, right? It's, it's a, often used as a tool over against other people. And so often what happens is churches choose to bend to those threats and submit to such people regardless of how kowtowing to doing things their way might hurt others, hurt the church, or perpetuate disunity. We think, well, we can't, we, we got to listen to them. They've... They have a lot of money. They give a lot of money that they've earned. We are not buying stock when we give to the church. You're not buying a share of the authority to make decisions and influence people. This this is not what money in the church is meant for. The more you have, the more you might give that Christ's word might spread. It's, It's not, I've amassed this and so I'm going to use this as a tool to get my way in the church. This is not of Christ. This is not what Christ is like or his people are to be like. And the reason we do that and allow that to perpetuate, even when it's hurtful to so many in the church, and we see people leave because they start to realize there's nothing you can do here. Right? The, the, the big money, the, the, the big names, they run everything. And so I'm going to go somewhere else. But we, we, we won't look at that honestly. We won't look at it objectively. So we show favoritism and deference to people like this. Or they are using what they give to get favoritism and preference. And we act as as though we're so dependent on wealth and money that we just can't afford to lose big givers. And so rather than having faith that God will provide for what he wants to do, we just let it it happen. And I, I was talking to somebody earlier this week. I honestly can't remember who I was talking to. I will in a minute. But, um... Like, you see this so often in, in churches. Churches will, 
be around for a long time, and then all of a sudden you hear stories about them in the past tense. That they used to be a big church, used to be a great church, and they, they whittle down, and then they end up closing with a very, very small group of people or two or three families that wouldn't give or wouldn't give in on anything, and, and they ran everybody off and got the empire they wanted, and then it dies. And this happens so much, particularly in rural places where, where um, the finances and the resources are not the same as they are in urban places. And so James is addressing something very dangerous to the church. We, we can um, show favoritism and partiality in a lot of different ways, and it's unchristlike. It's damaging to the church. We have to keep in mind, as James is trying to rally them here around this idea, that we're the church, though. Right? So... Where, where normally this would be the way you solve things and take care of things, we don't do that here. We do it like we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To show favoritism and partiality and to constantly defer to such people is in opposition to the faith. That's what James is saying. That's how serious it is. Wealth is not only warned about so much in Scripture because we might spend it on bad things or waste it, but because our hearts are idle factories and the more resources we have to indulge our desires and get what we want, the more corrupt we will become. Where is the spirit of Jesus in the church? Where is it when a church is acting in this way in a, in a perpetual ongoing basis and it just turns over and it looks the same all the time? And we'd have to look inside sometimes, even though it's tough. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So notice here, the action of God is the basis of our actions as the church, God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. Therefore, since God is like that, we cannot favor the rich. In the gospel, mercy triumphs over judgment like that. That ruins a person on account of their appearance. It's not that, that being poor earns God's special blessing. And if you're poor, you're saved. And so... Uh, the best thing you can do is, is be as poor as you can be. That would be favoritism for God to act in that way. It's that God has chosen to indict those who rest in their wealth and in their status and in their name and in their accomplishments by choosing the poor of this world instead to be heirs of his wealth. Those that you wouldn't think would be that. In other words, God's kingdom is for those who love him. Love him. As James says, it's for those who are rich in faith which means they're rich in complete dependence on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Those who are spiritually what the poor are physically. Right? That's this, that, that divide you see in Scripture between poor and rich is ultimately a spiritual reality that poor people show us physically what we all are spiritually. God saves those of faith, those who look completely away from themselves, are completely dependent on someone else with resources, realizing they are poor regardless of what they have. Talking about poor in relation to salvation, to be the heirs. God has chosen such people to be the heirs in his will, so to speak. 
But in verse 6, many in these congregations have dishonored the poor man. Now, if you look at the the flow of the text, verse 1 to verse 6, I think he means Jesus here. You have dishonored the poor man who for our sakes became poor. Jesus is the true poor man in this world. It was Jesus who emptied himself of his advantages, did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own gain in this world. It was Jesus who became a man of no reputation, who by the wise was considered a fool and by the rich considered a beggar. It was Jesus who took on the debt of the whole world to such a degree that his death was required by his sacrifice on the cross and to show partiality and favoritism in his church, especially towards the rich who often use their wealth to oppress the church is completely unlike him. And it kills our witness as people who profess faith in him. James asked them why they would show favoritism to the rich when the rich are the very source of so many of their problems. That's one of the issues of favoring rich people. You are always at their mercy. And apparently they often don't have a lot of it. And it was not just inside the church, but outside of it as well, that those with less are taken advantage of. And beloved, they are the ones, the sinfully and self-serving rich that were blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called in verse 7. And I, I, I think it's possible he's referring to our baptism here because we were baptized in the name of this God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We were joined to the one who saved us and placed us into Christ so authentically, so genuinely and deeply that now we bear his name. We belong to him. And to act like that is to dishonor that name. So we pick it up in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. When James um, calls the command to love your neighbor as yourself, in verse 8, the royal law, he is saying quite clearly that what we're being charged to live like here as the church is absolutely fundamental To all the revelation we've received from God in Scripture. This is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. Sums it all up in a in a sense. In Matthew 22, 36 to 40, our Lord Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment and all God's commandments is. And he says, of course, the first is this to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. But also, he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what James is actually doing here by reiterating what the greatest commandment was to love the Lord and our neighbor as our own selves is showing that the overall thrust of biblical revelation period is wrapped up in this commandment. It's that central to everything about being a Christian. This is what it means ultimately for the church to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with integrity. We love our neighbors like we love our own selves. And we don't show partiality or favoritism to people in any of our dealings. In particular, when it comes to how much money they have. 
and the place of that in the church. We are here to show God loves in grace, which means there are no favorites. There are no strings attached. Everybody's on equal footing. Beloved, there's something so fundamentally corrupt and evil in showing partiality in the church that by itself it reveals we are dishonoring the Lord and disobeying his word to such an extent that we have no witness. When a church is governed by the preferences of those to whom it caters in order to keep the peace and do well, the name of Christ is dishonored and the light is hidden. If we really were to fulfill this royal law, James is saying, as he's saying to them, then you wouldn't be struggling so much. You'd be doing well. So let us as a church search our own hearts tonight. Because in verse 9, if we show partiality, which is categorically the opposite of loving our neighbors biblically, we are committing sin. And the law, once again, is accusing us for not keeping it. Because in verse 10, it doesn't matter how much right we do or how much we are obeying in other places. To fail in one point of God's law is to fail in all of it precisely because it all hinges on love. Right? If, if love is not there, this love the Bible speaks of, it doesn't matter what else is happening. We're, we're breaking everything when there's not love. Those who love God and have faith in Him being so impoverished spiritually that all their dependencies on him want to love their neighbors well. They realize what they've been given. And we often put ourselves back under the law's condemnation because we lack faith. And then notice what James is saying there in verse 11 one more time. For he who said, do not commit adultery. That word for is really big here. It always is. For he who said, do not commit adultery, as though that's what they've been doing also said, do not murder, which implies they're also doing that. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice how the verse implies that not loving our neighbors by showing partiality and favoritism is likened to adultery. Our hearts are divided between loves and then murder, killing someone effectively. These are two commands Jesus specifically addressed from the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. So, so you don't actually seep with, with someone other than your spouse. Great, but you lust, so you've committed adultery. You're guilty. So you don't actually take someone's life when you're angry with them, but you hate them so much you'd like to kill them in your heart while well, you've committed murder. The first implication is that loving God and neighbor must be what shapes the entire thrust of our hearts, of our character, towards our neighbor. James is saying to this group, listen, don't take comfort for yourselves because there is some obedience to God in different areas of your lives when you're actively showing favoritism to the rich and shunning the poor. Or if you're one of the rich in the house of God and are using your wealth to get your way over against the poor and make yourself something in the church. By breaking the command to love your neighbor, James says, you stand condemned for breaking all of God's law. You're guilty. Again, And he's not saying you're not saved. He's going to get to this. He's saying when you break this, it doesn't matter what other righteousness you can cling to. You're completely off base. You're living. What you're doing is condemnable under the law. 
If you were still under it, you'd deserve to die for it. The wages of sin is death. Right? Look at verse 12 then. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, none of us wants to be judged under the law. We'll be found guilty, no exceptions. God's demand is too high for our fleshly hearts to keep. So James says, stop speaking and acting then as though Christ has not accomplished everything for you in such a way that he set you free from this law. Speak and act as people who have been set free. It's people under the law that are working so hard to justify themselves by their actions that end up hating other people so much and not serving and loving their neighbors. You aren't like that anymore. You aren't under this. So stop acting like you are. Stop thinking like people that think, well, I don't have to obey this and that should cancel out my disobedience to this. Christ lays claim to all that we are. Speak and act as people who no longer have the law hanging over them to accuse them. And so are trying by their performance to please God. That's the actions of a faithless heart. James says, you're living like Jesus hasn't set you free from sin. When in fact God has shown you such mercy as to cancel the judgment against you for sin. Why do you want to judge people and make distinctions with your evil thoughts under the law? You're not going to have mercy if you persist in this. Live like people who are not going to be judged by God's standard in the law, but by the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on their behalves, which has set us free. You and I are free in Christ to obey everything God said and know we no longer stand under condemnation when we blow it in certain areas. That fact is meant to push us into, into holiness, into the realization in our lives of what God has done inside of us. You're free. You have nothing to be afraid of. Christian, you are free to fail. Better to fail and fall flat on your face. At least you're headed in the right direction. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How can those who have been shown mercy not show mercy in the church of all places? That's basically what James is driving at here. Why are you living like people of judgment when you're the recipients of divine mercy in Christ? That's what he's asking. And in verse 13, that's what he reveals, the triumph of the gospel in them and over them. The mercy of God in Christ triumphs over judgment for all who believe by grace through faith in Christ. If mercy triumphs over judgment, we don't need to be a people of judgment, making distinctions and showing favoritism and showing partiality. That's not the kind of people we are. We're recipients of mercy. So show mercy to your neighbors, James is saying. It's because you're saved and because you're in Christ and because the word has brought you to life in James 1 and it's been implanted in you and is growing. Again, all he's saying is, listen, you are this. Stop being that. 
right? Do not show partiality. Do not show favoritism. Don't act unchristlike. That's what's at issue here. How could you bear my name and not act like me? And showing favoritism and partiality, especially when it's based on wealth or standing like that, is the antithesis of showing Christ. Because he, of all things, doesn't do that and instead treats people the opposite of what they deserve or what they've earned. We all need mercy too much not to be showing it, beloved. In particular to those who are in such great need among us as we always will stand before Jesus with complete need of Him. So, what do we do tonight when we realize we are not obeying this text perfectly? What do we do as Christians when you realize, like in this text, that We've shown partiality, we've shown favoritism, and we've refused to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we've been so off base at times as to hate our brothers and sisters. And we would never say it, but maybe we think subconsciously it'd be better if they were gone or if they were dead, right? What do we do when we realize we're very far from being like Jesus? What do we do? Beloved, we bank on the mercy of God in the triumph of the gospel. For the one who has faith in Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy forgives what his justice demands, all because of Jesus Christ, who obeyed where we have not and has risen from the dead. That's how, what we were talking about this morning, that's why justification by grace through faith is so central. I I think is the central thing in the Bible. And it's so central for our minds to always have up there. Because if, if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of the fact that the righteousness we lacked before God, that we need to be in a right relationship with Him, with Him, has been fully granted to us as a gift. So the active, uh, the, the, the obedience I need, again, I've received it as a gift. It's passive righteousness that is mine. That's the basis for the active righteousness we're called to in Scripture. We don't read this and say, oh man, if I don't do this, I'm not going to be saved. We read it and say, I'm saved. Lord, why am I not living like this? Help me. Forgive me where I've fallen short. Forgive me where I break your law. Right? Forgive me when I'm sinning. Help me. Help me. And, and James is saying, with this statement, among other things, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's who, we, that's who we are. We're people for whom mercy has triumphed over what we deserved. So you give that away. I mean, you, you, there is a real sense in which you can't lose as a Christian, right? Jim Elliott, the, I'm sure I've quoted this before, one of the um, Ecuador Five that was killed uh, by the Alca Indians, those five missionaries, he wrote in his journal when his family and very brilliant young man and people were mad at him for you're throwing everything away and you're going to the Alca Indians down in, you know, near Peru or, or there in Central America. What are you doing? You're wasting your life. And he says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And th- this is the life of a believer. You aren't going to lose when you give it away. 
Right? The promise is sure. Heaven is coming. Eternity is coming. Nothing can take that from you. You don't need the approval of anyone. We don't need to get our way. We don't need to win. We're free from that. Right? We're free from having to win, having to be the boss and be the best and be heard and be seen. It's, it's all null and void now. We don't need it. We, we have everything we need in Christ. Justification is so important because without it, the good works that you do will become tedious and you'll become afraid and which will lead to more guilt, which leads to more disobedience because we don't have faith in the gospel. Beloved, mercy triumphs over judgment. We are not getting what we deserve and we won't get what we deserve. It won't happen because of Christ. That's the basis of good works. That's the basis of serving and loving our neighbor as God has commanded us to do. It's not that God has a conflict in himself where like mercy and justice are fighting it out and mercy wins. There's no duality in the nature of God. That's not what the text is saying. This means mercy triumphs over judgment that the righteousness of Jesus Christ freely given to us in the forgiveness of our sins means that the justice of that same God has been met and satisfied. Judgment exists in the economy of the law in the first part of verse 13. Judgment does not exist in the economy of the gospel in the last part of verse 13. And by this, by his grace and the freedom it has given us even to fail, that's how we live our lives. Our Lord Jesus calls us to fulfill the law of love by acting with the same humility and impartiality with which he lived his life on earth so that in all things we would be proclaimers of the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment in him. We cannot proclaim Jesus to the world in our actions or our words unless we have this love in us for others. It's impossible to produce on our own and it doesn't matter how orthodox our theology is and it should be orthodox. We have no witness if we don't have this love in us for others. Where favoritism and partiality are There's nothing there of the love of Jesus for sinners. It's not showing it. It can't and it won't. There's nothing of the mercy of the God who, rather than casting us aside for something better, gave his son to die for us when there's partiality and favoritism. We must be emptied of ourselves, but we can be because we've been set truly free. Again, what's to lose? Other than ourselves. What's to lose? And, and ourselves, myself, is just going to take me right into hell. So the old me can go, quite frankly. Right? I need that to happen. There's no need for favoritism and partiality where Jesus Christ is reigning in the gospel. There's no need for it. In freedom now, having been set free, we may now obey without any consequences. And that's how we are the church that we're called to be in the Word of God. 